Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Welcome to the Talkville 21 podcast. This episode will be starting a short series exploring Francis Fukuyama's notion of the end of history. Thirty years after its initial publication, The End of History and the Last Man remains, if not the most influential, then at least one of the most well-known ideas in political theory. Positing that liberal capitalism had functionally triumphed over any major alternative for political and economic life, Fukuyama's theory very quickly captured the imagination of the public in the context of the end of the Cold War. This massive swell of public interest elevated Fukuyama to the heights of academic celebrity, a status he continues to enjoy today. That being said, it wasn't without its disadvantages. Fukuyama's analysis has been criticized continuously, and there's a general consensus that his work hasn't held up over the past 30 years of political upheaval. Over the course of the next few weeks, we will be exploring the fallout of his ideas and the impact they have had on various fields. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of Talkville 21, the podcast. I'm here today with Peter Zihan, a geopolitical analyst, founder of Zihan on Geopolitics. Uh, he's also a fairly prolific public speaker and author with three published books on the market, the most recent of which is Disunited Nations, The Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World. In my opinion, he's also one of the most insightful voices on international relations and geopolitics. Welcome to Talkville 21, and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. All right. So uh, I just wanted to jump into the into the subject and sort of approach things chronologically and start with uh, with the late 80s and early 90s at the beginning of our topic and ask you about the H.W. Uh, Bush administration. Uh, you've mentioned before that American foreign policy became somewhat aimless after the end of the Cold War and sort of singled out H.W. Bush as the last president with a coherent foreign policy vision. This seems to me to be a pretty striking corollary to the notion of the end of history. Obviously, if there's a vision, then there's a need for updating the geopolitical strategy and, uh, and a new understanding of the world that goes beyond this uh, sudden stop. So I wanted to ask you, uh, what do you think the HW administration got right? And what exactly did you see as his vision for foreign policy? Well, before I can explain H.W. Bush, I need to take us back a step. Um, American foreign policy during the Cold War was strongly bipartisan, and it was based in the concept that we need an alliance to fight the Soviet Union, that in any direct conflict between the two countries, if we didn't have a bevy of allies between us and them, it would immediately go nuclear, and that would obviously end badly for everybody. So at the end of World War II, we disbanded the imperial system. Uh, We told everybody around the table at Bretton Woods and at the meetings after the war that the imperial system and the competition that it generated are what brought us to the world wars. So instead, we are going to be in charge of security policy for everyone and make all the big decisions and coordinate all the allies. And in exchange, we would not only defend everyone who was involved in the alliance structure, we would create this thing called free trade and globalization so that every country that was part of the alliance and beyond could participate in an international trading network without having to build a military uh, system in order to enforce that trade. So, you know, old imperial, you traded with your colonies and you shot at everybody else oversimplification, but that's basically how it went down. Uh, In the Cold War and in the free trade era, the United States would defend everybody's commerce so that everyone could become rich as if they had won the war all by themselves and were a global empire. Uh, It was a great bribe and it worked. George Herbert Walker Bush was the last president of that network. He was there when the Soviet Union finally fell. And all of a sudden this uh, guns for butter trade that we had worked out back in the 40s no longer seemed to apply. 
So his goal was to transition the everything is about the Cold War mentality to everything is about something new, democracy, human rights, women's rights, uh, generally not being a jerk to each other. <laughs> uh, the whole thousand points of light, the whole new world order idea was his to create a completely new international system that used free trade and globalization as the bribe still, but to achieve a different sort of goals beyond simply avoiding nuclear Armageddon. It was a brilliant idea. And he brought in a lot of people from the left, the center, and the right in order to make it happen. But in the United States, uh, we love to punish people who have been successful. So we voted him out of office. And uh, he had at most a year to implement his vision. And then he was replaced by a guy who said it's the economy, stupid, and didn't honestly do anything with foreign policy for his first three years. It's rather ironic given the, um, the, the background that H.W. Bush brought to the White House and some of, uh, some of his actions, his foreign policy actions, specifically in the context of Latin America. Uh, his defense of an order that was uh, not necessarily based on the values that he was aiming to promote uh, a little bit later on. Well, um, U.S. policy in Latin America has always been a little bit different from U.S. policy for the rest of the world. Hmm. Uh, Monroe Doctrine has always been alive and strong in American strategic thinking, uh, and Herbert Walker Bush was no, no change from that mindset. Uh, I would add that uh, Clinton, W., Obama, and now Trump have, in essence, carried on the uh, mechanics of the global order of the Cold War. And in the aftermath of the Cold War, a lot of the Latin American countries have informally joined that network. Uh, and that's the story of not just the Mexico boom, but the, the Brazil boom and the fact that Argentina hasn't completely fallen apart. Yet. Yet. I, I don't think they will, but uh, wow, do they like to be at the edge. <laughs> All right, well, in that case, we'll, we'll move right along. <laughs> Uh, because there's also the Clinton presidency, and uh, I know you have a lot of thoughts uh, specifically on the, the, the absence of movement, or, or at least the absence of, uh, of forward momentum. But we, we can say that Clinton did, did move things along in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm thinking notably of the expansion of NATO uh, and his actions to sort of uh, increase the scale of globalization and push the border back in Europe, uh, bring, bring the Europeans uh, more fully into the international order, particularly the, uh, the Eastern Europeans. Uh, so what, what are the missed opportunities you feel that the Clinton administration could have, uh, could have taken yeah, advantage of? I, I'm going to pretty much disagree with everything you just said about Bill Clinton. By uh, all means. He literally woke up one day in 1997 and said, hey, let's expand NATO. Um, <laughs> none of the security work was done. None of the vetting of the intelligence services of those countries was done. Hell, Hungary was brought in, didn't even have a land border with the rest of the European countries uh, that were part of the alliance structure. It was done in the most slapdash way possible. And that when it came to foreign policy, that was kind of Bill Clinton's style. Uh, he, he wasn't interested in foreign affairs. And if there was a summit the next day, he would get together with all of the folks in the American bureaucracy who knew what the country was all about and he'd study for the test and he'd hit out of the park because he was great in a one-on-one -on -one or a small group setting, uh, but there was never any follow-up. So there were no troops deployed. There was no integration of NATO norms with these new countries that had been former Soviet pacts. They kept running all of their old Soviet era hardware until 10 years later. Clinton just wasn't wasn't the guy for that. If we had had the uh, Herbert Walker Bush team for a second term, people like Robert Gates, I have no doubt that one of two things would have happened. Either number one, we would have had a better relations with the Russians, which would have made NATO moot, which would have been you know, honestly, the, the goal of the organization all along, or number two, relations with the Russians would have come to a head very early, and we would have expanded to the NATO footprint that we have now 25 years later, uh, within the first five years. 
Either way, there would have been a lot more clarity as to what American goals are and where the lines are. And instead, we kind of went through this wishy-washy period that started with Clinton, continued under W, intensified under Obama, and ultimately fell apart among Trump, where honestly, nobody trusts anybody all right. Well, that brings us more or less to the Iraq war, uh, talking about wishy-washy things that no one seems to know what to do with. And th this, is a, this is a topic that is incredibly contentious because there are still, there are so many prevailing narratives that just haven't really been re-examined since the, the mid-2000s. And, and no one seems to have, a, have much of a handle on what, what happened, what it was, what it meant. So I was wondering if you could, uh, you could bring a fresh perspective, what, what exactly sure. happened. So from the folks that I know in the defense and the intelligence community, the, the, the basic goal was very simple. It was um, in the aftermath of 9-11, we knew we lacked the skill set and the force posture to go after Al-Qaeda. We attempted to get them in Afghanistan, and when they were holed up in Tora Bora, uh, we realized that the number of troops we had in the area was insufficient to the task. So the Joint Chiefs brought W. Bush the option of nuking Tora Bora 11 times. Uh, because that's what it would have taken to guarantee that the tunnel systems under the mountain uh, would have actually collapsed. And, you know, say what you will about W. Bush. He was like, that strikes me as excessive. So the folks in Al-Qaeda got away. They went west through Iran where the U.S. couldn't go. The Iranians knew that they were passing through, and then they dispersed. And that condemned us to playing a whack-a-mole game throughout the entire Middle East. And since we can't invade the entire Middle East simultaneously... The solution that was struck upon was to get the Middle Eastern countries to do it for us. So we invaded Iraq, not because we thought they were in Iraq, they weren't, but because by putting uh, an armored brigade in Fallujah, and you know you don't use an armored brigade to do urban pacification, that's, that's infantry, not tanks, it threatened Syria and Saudi Arabia and Iran because they didn't know what we were going to do next. So they destroyed Al-Qaeda for us. Uh, and it worked. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't pull the plug at that point because that was back in what, 2003, uh, early 2004. And so uh, the decision was made at the top, try to make Iraq look like Wisconsin. Uh, and that's where it all went to hell. So we, we shattered the Ba'ath Party. We destroyed all the traditional spheres of influence that made Iraq function. Uh, and then we tried to remake it somewhat in our image, and it completely fell apart. So the place descended into civil war and chaos. The Iranians got more influence in the country than they ever had before. Uh, and it took us 20 years to both admit that the strategy didn't work, and admit that we couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So eventually we were left with the choice of being there forever or leaving. And so uh, Obama continued the W plan of withdrawal, didn't even accelerate it, Trump did the same thing. And now we're in the final days. So it was merely a matter of um, mission creep, all things considered. Uh, I think that's a, a touch of an oversimplification, but really only a touch. Um, mm. The plan worked. We just decided to then have a second plan, and the second plan was a bad idea. All right. So I wanted to ask your thoughts in that case on the on the uh, the correlation notion of the forever war, how it's sort of dominated public perception recently. Well, they're over, so they're not yes. forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there is a theoretical possibility, although I'm not sure it's like the majority chance, uh, that if we had left back in 2004, 2005, that uh, Iraq would be in a much better position now mm. uh, than it was then. Afghanistan would not have been. 
Uh, Afghanistan, the only time that Afghanistan has ever had a functional government is when every single country around it has been in chaos or civil war. It's a stateless area, and there is no way that we can beat it into any shape that we're going to like. So the only debate to be had from a security point of view is whether or not you leave a small footprint there to look out for trouble uh, with enough kinetic power to, to drop the hammer on things that you think are going to be trouble. The problem with that theory is that it will always generate trouble. There are large portions of the world that geographically are simply incapable of sustaining what we consider to be a modern government, much less a democratic one. Uh, and Afghanistan is one of those. So you're either actively managing it badly or you're leaving it alone. And I don't mean to suggest that I have like the golden keys to a solution here. Uh, if it was easy, we would have done it 15 years ago. But the American people are simply done. Now, will that come back to bite us in the ass? It might, but honestly, Afghanistan being a stateless area is more a problem for the countries that border it than for us. Well, that brings me to the question of what exactly has this focus on the Middle East since, uh, since 2005 accomplished? Nothing, nothing. It, it's shattered a number of the secular institutions that ran the country and has either thrown them into chaos or made the Islamic groups far more powerful. And basically, we've been stirring the omelet, trying to turn it into a souffle, and it just hasn't worked. <laughs> now, moving forward, uh, we're going to have a very different picture now that the U.S. is done. I mean, we're, we're looking at a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan within a few weeks at this point. Uh, CENTCOM headquarters in Qatar are going to close probably within a year because there's nothing for them to coordinate anymore. And the general American footprint in the entire region is evaporating. And I'd even say even odds that places like Inserlik are going to get cl closed down because they don't support anything anymore, which means there's no need for a coordinating office there anymore, which means the Turks want to kind of take back control. And if the Middle East no longer has any troops, then all of a sudden the entire military commitment we have in Germany, which is scrupulously designed to support Middle Eastern operations, falls into question. We're in a position today where we only have three large-scale deployments in the wider world, Japan, Korea, and Germany. And the German one is in danger, and the Korean one is in danger. Now, had this happened 30 years ago, you can bet that Herbert Walker Bush would have had a few things to say about it and probably would have moved some pieces around on the board. But that's not the world we're in. Uh, as of three years ago, the United States achieved net energy independence. So there's no longer a energy rationale for the U.S. being involved. And as we've seen in just the last month, that when oil prices hit 70, the shale operators kick into high gear and produce more. So any uh, energy shocks we have in North America are small and limited. That just leaves the general argument of supporting the global structures of the order. Because the idea has been that, you know, we will pay you to be on our side. And we realize that for you to function in the modern era, you need energy. So we've been in the Middle East to make sure that the energy can flow to our order allies. But there's no longer a security quid pro quo. And the idea that the United States is going to fight to keep the oil flows in the Persian Gulf open so that China can be the world's largest energy importer, that's a little dubious considering today's political environment. We're not just looking at American withdrawal from the Middle East and an end to the forever wars. We're looking at Americans retreating from maintaining what allows the rest of the world to function, because that's what makes sense domestically in the United States. And you could argue that it also makes strategic sense globally. That would require a deeper conversation that I've seen possible in not just the Biden administration, but the Trump administration and the Obama administration and the Clinton administration. And it's been a long time since Herbert Walker Bush was around. 
I think that's a really important distinction and not a lot of people view it that way. Um, the idea that American power is so uh, essential to undergirding this entire flow of energy across the world. An inability to reckon with the strategic unimportance of uh, for, for average Americans of, of this entire network. Uh, but of a mind flip that the idea that the U.S. just doesn't need oil or just doesn't need the Middle East. I mean, mm. it's so alien from what we've been hearing for the last what, 50 years mm. <laughs> and for it to happen so quickly. Of course, that, that brings up the question of energy independence on which you've, you've spoken a lot. Do you think that energy independence has been a major bipartisan through line uh, in foreign policy? No, no, no. It's, it's not reflected in our foreign policy much at all. There, there's, you got to remember, the United States is the least involved economy in the world in terms of as a percent of GDP. Uh, so it's been a long time since we've had to be interested in the wider world from an economic point of view. I mean, you have to go back to the previous, not just the 1900s, the 1800s. Uh, so we just, God, this is going to sound awful. We're just not educated on the topic, and that's okay. Uh, because it's really not relevant to us. If we're interested in the wider world, the average American, it's because of travel. It's not because there's any sort of heavy dependence there. The things that the United States, for whatever reason, don't make are not things that we can't make. We have the capital, we have the technological know-how, we have the labor force. It's just that we've decided that in a globalized system, it's more efficient to do them elsewhere. So the products that the U.S. does make are ones that we're not just competitive in, but we're hyper competitive in. Whereas if they're made in China, it's an employment program and they're the only things that they can make. If they could make the things the U.S. makes, they would. And so we're just honestly waiting for this kind of click in the average American psyche to take it all back. And Trump... While I'm sure a lot of people who are watching here have a lot of strong opinions about him, one of the things he absolutely got right is he changed the conversation on trade. He took it away from the guns for butter discussion of the order and made it just about economic issues. Now, we can argue that he maybe he did it in the wrong way. You can make that argument about any president very easily. But he got us thinking about economics for economics, not as a means to a security end. And Biden has come in and basically doubled down on that. So all the sanctions that Trump put in place uh, around the world are in place with the exception of one set versus the Europeans on Airbus, uh, which honestly were started three presidents ago. The direction that trade policy is taking under both presidents is much more firm, much more hard knuckled, much more zero sum game. And it's a game that perfectly honest, the US is very capable of playing. So you feel that Donald Trump's presidency has changed the paradigm it's changed the conversation, certainly. Uh, his biggest weakness, of course, is he declares something, then he'd move over and play golf. Uh, and so nothing was really institutionalized. Biden is taking Trump policies and institutionalizing them. Okay, so this is continuing. You don't anticipate there will be any any return to the to the policies of the uh, Obama administration, at least from a foreign policy perspective under, oh, under Biden. The Obama administration didn't have a foreign policy, so I don't think that's a fair question. Don't get me wrong. There's a just like there's a thousand things about Trump that a lot of people don't care for. There's a thousand things about Biden that people don't care for. But he actually has a foreign policy team that is making foreign policy. And we have not had that on a global scale since Herbert Walker Bush. It's an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective. Uh, I, I did want to touch briefly on um, semiconductors, specifically in the context of, uh, of China. Sure. Uh, I realize this is a bit of a curveball, but it is one of the things that America might have some difficulty supplying over the next few years, notably in the context of rare metals. 
Do you anticipate any difficulty on that level? Uh, well, let's start with the rare metals issue because <laughs> that's a boogeyman that keeps being dropped. There's nothing about rare earth metals that are rare. They're a byproduct of any number of mining processes. Uh, the problem is turning the ore, which is very abundant. Some of them are more abundant than copper, turning them into a finished metal. Uh, it's uh, environmentally sketchy, but it's not a new technology. It dates back to the 1920s. So to think that the United States can't pick up on that is kind of dubious. Uh, in addition, after the Chinese did their first geopolitical scare with rare earth a decade ago, uh, a lot of processing capacity has built out in places like France and Australia and Malaysia and Texas. So if the Chinese flipped the switch today and said that no one else can ever get any rare earths from us ever again, all that stuff would spin up and in less than six months we'd be okay. And most producers have more than six months of inventory. So that's not something I worry about at all. Uh, semiconductors more broadly, uh, there's three general categories. You got the really high-end things you use for like servers and spacecraft and high-end computers. Uh, second, you got the mid-range that you're going to use for like your average computer. And then at the low end, you got the ones that like, you know, you have a smart blender. So, you know, you're standing there using your blender and it shines your phone when it's done. Doesn't really add to your life, but that's what we call the internet of things. Honestly, in my opinion, the most overhyped trend that we've seen culturally in the United States in quite some time, but hey, people seem to like smart spatulas, so whatever. Okay, those are made in different places. So the low-end stuff is all China. The mid-end stuff is Malaysia and Thailand. The high-end stuff is Taiwan, Korea, and Japan, and the United States. The designs for almost all of them come from three places, Germany, the United States, and Japan. So we know how to do it. We know how to do the best of it. We've just outsourced it. Now, in the case of the Koreans and the Taiwanese, they have easily spent over a trillion and a half dollars over the last 20 years building out this fab capacity with subsidies. So to think that this is a fair state-to-state -state competition, it is not. They wouldn't have happened without the subsidies. So honestly, for the high-end stuff, China is not the problem. And for the low-end stuff, I would challenge whether we really need that at all. Now, building out a fab facility is not something that you can do overnight. So the few years time frame that you floated is probably the right frame to think about this. But a couple of things. Number one, the high-end silicon quartz that forms the basis of semiconductors, 80% of it comes from North Carolina. So in the semiconductor war, if it comes to that, we have resource control. So yeah, I don't worry about that either. And then of course, we have the technical capacity to expand the industrial footprint in the United States to take advantage of what we know and have the money that we've got. Uh, in that, we're already under development. We probably need 12 fabs in this country. I think we've got three that are under construction right now that start next year. So the process has started. But again, the high-end stuff comes from countries we broadly trust. And because we're Americans and we really want the best, 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 that's what we're going after. So if you want a smart spatula, you might be in trouble because I don't think that the United States is going to get into the low-end semiconductor fab. But if you're concerned about iPhones and computers, well, let me rephrase that. If you're worried about smartphones and computers, we're going to be fine. If you're worried about iPhones, there may be a problem. Because while every American firm in the last two years has seen the writing on the wall and has looked for alternative suppliers to China, Apple is the only major company that's gone the other direction. They've quadrupled down on the Chinese supply chain system. So when this all breaks, and I'm pretty sure it will, uh, we're not going to have new iPhones for a while, but Samsung's pretty good too. I would agree with that assessment. That being said, all of the countries that you mentioned for the middle and high end stuff, all of them are, are fairly close to the Chinese sphere of influence. You don't believe this poses any problem. 
I wouldn't say it's a, a walk in the park, uh, but from a security point of view, the Chinese have never been able to push past the first island chain and integrate with the rest of the world ever, with the exception of now under the global order. So honestly, if the United States really wants to destroy the PRC, all it has to do is go home. As for the countries on the periphery, the further south you go, the safer they are. There's jungles and mountains separating the Chinese from the Thais, for example. Uh, and there's no period in Chinese history where the Chinese have ever been able to influence the countries to the south. Uh, and if they try to go east, they immediately end into a conflict with the Japanese who have a better navy. Can a lot of things go wrong? Oh, oh. Totally. I do not mean to dissuade anyone from thinking about what a war in the Pacific would look like. It's a good, good preparation, if nothing else. But there is nothing that is built in that part of the world that can't be built in the United States and Mexico. The only thing that the Mexicans cannot do is semiconductors. And that's because it's a precision education system that they just don't have. But any other sort of manufacturing, we have long known, uh, about three years running now, that if you have an industrial plant in North America and an industrial plant in East Asia, the industrial plant in North America can make the products quicker at a lower price and at a higher quality point that you can in East Asia, because the inputs are cheaper here the energy is cheaper here, the labor force is um, more productive per unit of output, and the Mexicans have really come into their own as a middle manufacturer. Well, that sort of solves the problem for the United States and you know, North America uh, on the whole. <laughs> There's a system of alliances, uh, the European countries notably, who have to deal with, uh, or would have to deal with any, any potential fallout from a semiconductor uh, yeah, shortage. Ugly. Yeah, no, the, the, the Europeans lack the differentiated labor force that is necessary to even attempt semiconductors. So even if you could say that the Germans can design chips, which they can, I really doubt that they can run a fab. Electronics and computing require a labor force that is both high skilled, medium skilled, and then also has some low skilled stuff for assembly. And one of the uh, European obsessions with income inequality has achieved a lot of great social gains. They're much closer together than we are here in the United States, but that means their labor force isn't differentiated. And you're just not gonna pay somebody to do a 10 nanometer chip the same that you're gonna pay somebody to snap together an iPhone case. Labor costs means that if any of these products were to be built in Europe, they'd have a price point four and five times of what we're used to here in the United States. To switch topics up a little bit, uh, I want to get to the notion of the end of history and how it sort of took on a life of its own, uh, having captured public imagination in the United States. Do you feel that the decisions, because of that sentiment, that the decisions have been made uh, over the past 30 years that were ultimately inevitable? Did you view that foreign policy sort of circled back on itself based on American public opinion? Well, I'm definitely not going to lay the fault for the shape of the world right now at Fukuyama's feet. I, no, that's <laughs> not fair. Um, but you've got to look at it from the average American point of view. With the global order in the 40s, we told the world that geography no longer matters. We will defend everyone. Everyone can play in the global economy. Uh, everyone can be part of any supply chain with any partner. doesn't matter if your country is a geographic and mountainous mess. You can play. And that policy is what allowed countries like Korea to exist in the modern age. And they're now you know, one of the five richest countries in the world in terms of their technological acumen. Uh, that could not have happened without the global structures that we put into place. So from 1945 to 1990, we told the world that geography no longer matters. 1990 came along and the Cold War ended. And after more than a generation of geography not mattering, now we said that security is all taken care of because compared to how it had been, it, it was done. So the mindset of the average American and some of the subtle texts of, of Fukuyama 
built on that because it was true. But when Herbert Walker Bush left, the management went away. And the old rules of the world from before World War II started to slowly reassert. And now they're back in full blast. So we didn't have anyone at the top who meaningfully updated the, uh, the marching orders for the diplomatic and the military corps throughout the entirety of the post-Cold War era. We might, might be starting to see some of that under Biden now, although I think it's too soon to draw any conclusions. The world has changed back to a more normal system. And we're just dealing with like the, the fallout and the breakdown of the last little bits of the Cold War order now. It's one thing to say that the U.S. has the ability to move beyond the system. It's another to say that that's what's going to happen. There's a lot of attachment, particularly on the left, to this, this idea of a liberal international order and the alliance system. I'm going to challenge that good and hard. I would say that there's no one on the left until we get to Biden that has had any clue about what the alliance system actually means and where it takes us. Uh, it was abandoned under Clinton. It was never picked up under Obama. Uh, so, you know, it, you're talking 30 years ago. And as to the right, we're in a, the midst of a every once in a generation or every once in two generation political shift in the United States where the factions that make up the two parties are moving around. And so for the left, it's far more important to consolidate among an identity that is something more than just not Trump. And they're having a hard time doing that. So they've ejected the socialists from the conversation. They've lost the unions. They're just hanging on by their fingernails organizationally. And on the right, the Trump administration ejected the business community and the national security conservatives from the Republican coalition. And we now have Republicans actively calling for defunding of the FBI and the military. We are in a very weird spot, politically speaking. It's not the first time we've been here. This is our seventh political evolution in this country. We're just incapable on the left or the right of even having a meaningful conversation about what we want out of the world. And that is reflected in Biden's policy. Because he's he said, you know, America's back. We're going to lead again, but we're going to do it with no troops and no money. That's not how that works. Not a winning strategy. Well, that, um, that raises the question, what exactly happened to this, uh, this military wing of the Republican Party? Where is it going? What is its legacy? So um, when Trump came in, one of the things that Trump's supporters really love about him is he doesn't mind telling people to screw off and firing them. And he really, really, really doesn't like to hear things that he doesn't want to hear. Uh, in that way, he's almost a, an inverse copy uh, of Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama, when, he, when somebody would tell him something he didn't want to hear, that person was never allowed in the White House again. He just shut out information that he didn't want to hear. He hermetically sealed himself in. And for the last six years of his presidency, he did absolutely nothing with foreign policy. Trump comes in. He's perfectly willing for the person to come in the room, but then he'll fire them so that they don't come in. And he'll usually do it via Twitter. After 70 years of preventing nuclear war and managing the world, we have a pretty robust diplomatic intelligence and uh, military corps who knows a lot about every part of the world. And so when Trump would do something, he would bring in the people who knew what they knew. But if they ever told him something that he didn't want to hear, then it was a personal vendetta and they were trying to destroy him politically. Four years of that, and we saw Trump in both the midterms and in uh, his re-election campaign actively campaigning against these factions, both in the business community and the military services, uh, to force them out of Congress, to force them out of his administration, to force them out of the apparatus of the Republican Party. And for all intents and purposes, they are now gone. So military voters are no longer Republicans. They're swing voters, which is kind of a weird position to be in for any faction. 
But for the Republicans who have been so much a part of the institution for so long, who have built their reputation on being apolitical, it's particularly jarring. Because if you talk to the officer corps, the Joint Chiefs right now, they just don't know uh, what their future is going to be. They have no institutional history in manipulating or participating in the domestic political system. So there is no conversation uh, among the, the major green uh, Donald Trump wing of the Republican Party, though it is now dominant, about ever bringing them back. They're seen as untrustworthy. I mean, we've actually had sitting Republican Congress people call serving generals, you know, traitors, because they weren't insufficiently slavish to Donald Trump. You know, they're never coming back to that party so long as that faction is in power. And the business community is out too. So the other kind of big core of the what I call the math and maps crowd that has run the Republican Party for the last 70 years, they're no longer even in the institution. There is a possibility that if the Democrats can come up with a meaningful national security policy or a meaningful business party, that both of these functions will jump ship as opposed to being swing voters. And if you look at the folks that Joe Biden has put in his cabinet in places like commerce and treasury and transport, you know, these are people with real business experience. This is not Obama 2.0, where there was a grand total of five years of private sector experience in the entire cabinet combined. No, no, no. This is almost Trumpian in terms of bringing in people that actually know what they're doing. But unlike Trump, none of them have been fired yet. So there is a very real possibility that Biden will be able to bring these groups in. It'll cost him the socialist wing, but he's in the process of pushing them out of all decision making anyway. Uh, but that's where we are right now. It's, uh, it's very unsettling for somebody who does national security like me to see the entire national security apparatus on the outside. Because... <sighs> In the United States, politically, when the factions are all in motion, that's when we tend to make strange decisions. Because the people who actually have some concept of what's going on are no longer part of the process. People like me in the business community tend to um, avoid American politics when we can because it's unnecessarily messy. But that means that the people who actually have a concept of the context are not advising the decision makers or are not the decision makers. And one of the big dangers we saw under both Obama and Trump is, was this disassociation of people who were aware from governance. And that happens when the parties break down. But if the parties are broken down too long, we start making national security decisions that in retrospect were really, really, really bad. And so this is America's seventh reorientation, three of them ended in military conflicts. And do you anticipate some sort of... How do I, I don't have this? a specific fear right now. I'm just a student of history. I'm like, huh, I've seen this movie before. Fair enough. Well, um, I believe we're more or less out of time. There is one other question I wanted to ask. Sure. A uh, little bit more of a personal question. Where on earth did you find socks with capes on them? <laughs> I collect socks. So I think that specific set I picked up in uh, London. <laughs> All right. Delightful. Um, in any case, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Peter. It's, uh, pleasure. it's been an excellent conversation. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E. 21.com and stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.org.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com.